What does parrot taste like? You can do. <laughs> no, very, it, very, very it, difficult to catch, and they bite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the XNMO podcast. I am David Clark. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is, at least for now, forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. A quick note on the quality of the audio for these podcasts. Uh, we are obviously in lockdown, as I mentioned, at the moment. So we are relying solely on the quality of our internet connection to record them. And that quality of connection isn't always there. So we've done what we can to make it as listenable as possible. But please do excuse any uh, malfunctions and issues. Today on the podcast, we have Adi Badenhorst, one of the uh, original Swatland revolutionaries. Um, he is the main force behind and winemaker of Badenhorst Family Vineyards, where they make some fantastic wine. But I didn't really want to talk to Adi about the wine per se on this episode, uh, which is a bit strange given this is a wine podcast. I get it. I wanted to talk to Adi about Kalmustfontein, the farm he lives and works on, and all of the other projects he is undertaking on the property and one international project. Adi is an extremely good-natured person. Uh, he will laugh at your jokes as just as hard as he laughs at his own. He cares deeply about people and will, if given the time and permission, seek to understand the person he is talking to beyond the usual social graces. But there is an enigmatic side to Adi. Underneath the exterior, which on first impression can, see, can seem very spontaneous and even reckless, and at the very least disorganized, lies a very driven, passionate, and focused human being. He's very thoughtful and is constantly requesting others' opinions, especially when they don't align with his. He is certainly one of the people I most like talking to. He is, as they say, one of the good ones. I give you Artie Badenhorst. I'm joined here by okay. Artie Badenhorst. Hi, Artie. Hi, David. How are you? Yeah, good, man. Good, good, good. Just for those who don't, uh, who might not know you, maybe introduce yourself and what you do. Uh, my name is Adi Badnost. I live on the farm Kalmusfontein here in the Swatlands on the Paderberg, exactly halfway between Paul and Marmonsbury. My family and I moved here in 2008 and uh, we farm grapes, make wine, and uh, we're busy with a few other projects. Most of the time we, we, we try and stay busy. What were you doing before in wine before Kalmusfontein? I mean, you have a, a wine brand, yeah, obviously, so uh, Badnost Family Vineyards. But you were in Stellenbosch for a time before that? Yeah, I grew up in Constantia, uh, where my father was farm manager on a farm called Baiten for Wachtung. You know, my grandfather worked for many years, I think 46 or 47 years at Groot Constantia as farm manager there. So I grew up, you know, surrounded by vineyards and farming and agricultural background. And I attended a school called Weinberg Boys High School. I finished there in 1990. And then uh, I went to the University of Stellenbosch. I studied, I was there for three years at the University of Stellenbosch, and then uh, I got kicked out of there in 1993. I, I discovered. Did you, did you leave or did you get kicked out? I was a bit of a cerebral dwarf. Oh, right. And um, <laughs> I, I, I find I enjoyed, that hard to believe. I enjoyed too much, I enjoyed too much of the student life. I see. And then I farmed uh, vegetables for a year, 1994, and that was a fantastic year, 1994, because it was the, the first elections here. And um, I was actually studying a, a bit of theology as well in Athlone, which was sort of a bit of a melting pot of that in, in, in those days. It was an amazing time. And then I went to 
1995, I went to Altenburg and I did three years there finishing with uh, a diploma, I suppose, in uh, enology. I traveled a bit overseas, worked at a few places, and I ended up working at <clears throat> Groote Post. was my first job in 1999. Is and that in, was fantastic. in Darling? Yes, in Darling. And that yep. was, well, it was, in those days, it was still part of the Swartland, Darling. And, oh, they, they hadn't uh, escaped yet. Yeah, they, they hadn't escaped yet. And yeah, right. um, there I met up with um, Abram Bekus, who was the winemaker, Darling Sellers, what a fantastic human being. And of course, Ibn Saadi, who was making wines at Spice Root. But I only spent one year in Darling and then I, I was lured to Stellenbosch. I was appointed winemaker at the fantastic Rustenburg Wines, an amazing estate. You know, 1,200 hectares, been making wine for, for many, many years of the long tradition of uh, fantastic winemakers. And I, I was there for almost eight years. So how did you, after one end, year in Darling, how did you in one year in Darling end up at Rustenburg? I mean, Rustenburg is a, a pretty prestigious uh, and especially back in the late 90s, it was extraordinarily prestigious um, producer. You must have done something very, very right or known someone very high up. I don't know, David. <laughs> I, yeah, it, Just pure it, natural ability came to the, the cream rises to the top, <laughs> mate. Is that what, yeah. No, I think it was just, just, just luck at that stage, you know. And uh, yeah, but, but Rustenburg was an amazing place. I mean, anywhere else in the world, Rustenburg would be an appellation on its own. Mm. You know, just that, uh, that incredible property. And it was amazing there. I worked for the first couple of years under a guy called Rod Easter, a Kiwi, and uh, learned a hell of a lot from him. And uh, I had a great team at Rustenburg in the cellar, and we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of experimental uh, winemaking there. The, there was a lot of uh, scope for, for playing around and obviously making decent Bordeaux wines and, and Chardonnay mainly on the whites, and a lot of Sauvignon Blanc and the Brampton. But it was really a fantastic place to work. Great staff, really nice people. And I really cut my teeth there. Obviously, as you know, you know the wine industry is about uh, largely building up contacts, and you know, so I built up a few contacts there. So when I left there in 2007, I needed I needed some help in buying a, a piece of land, and that's where my cousin came into play, Hein Bardnost, and Hein and I bought Kalmusfontein together. So after you left Rustenburg, you bought Kalmusfontein. Uh, that's correct. Oh wow! Yeah. What was your what was yeah. your plan when you left Rustenburg? Like just whatever, or you didn't have a like an immediate plan? Uh, <laughs> I didn't have an immediate plan. I mean, I was pretty. It was uh, yeah, things are pretty pretty tough uh, tough going. You know, uh, my son Samuel was was a year old, and you know, I didn't have a didn't have a job, and I had to scurry around a bit and try and put put together a few deals just to put some food on the table. And then obviously, Kalmusfontein. You know, the farm, when we bought the farm. So just maybe, just maybe explain where Kamosfontein is um, in the context of the Swatland. So for those of you that don't know, there's a, there's a mountain range here called the Paderberg. And the Paderberg is the southern part of the Swatland. So the Swatland starts at the Paderberg and then it moves north, you know, 150 kilometers to the north. And it's close to the town of Marmonsbury, which is probably the, the most well-known town in the, in the Swatland. And, and we bought here, yeah, I mean, this farm was, it's a magnificent piece of land, you know. It, it was 60 hectares when we bought it. It was an amphitheater facing east, that morning sun coming up, old vineyards that weren't that well looked after um, at that stage. Um, mainly planted to, to Chenin Blanc, Old Columbar, Sinso and Grenache. We have since planted a few other varieties. But it was just a beautiful canvas to start. Old winery that was last used in the 1940s. We fixed that up. So it took us a couple of years to get the winery going. And, and I relied heavily on the goodwill of 
of my neighbors in the Swatland. You know, guys like Julian Johnson, James Reed from Accolade Wines. We used his winery, the Kretzels, Lamasuk, Yibin uh, Saadi, of course, and the guys at Anexluf. And so we were making wine <clears throat> in four or five different wineries for the first couple of years, you know, while we were fixing up Kalmusfontein, driving called- around day and night. Sorry, was it called Kalmusfontein when you bought it? Or was that the name yes. you gave it? Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. It was called Kalmusfontein. Kalmust is a, is, a, is a water plant that grows here, and it's called Kalmusfontein. Calamus acorus is the scientific name for it. Okay. So there must have been water on the natural water on the farm then? or Yeah, they, 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 there's a really nice little fountain uh, above our house that gives us a steady flow of drinking water. We do have one small borehole as well that we, you know, we need a bit of water around the house and for the cottages and for the winery. And then we've got a couple of dams and we try and catch as much runoff as we can every year. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the vineyards, all the vineyards are unirrigated except the young planting. So the young vineyards, if you plant it, do have drip irrigation in just to keep them going. Because, the, you know, as you know, the last couple of years have been extremely tough from a viticultural point of view. Trying to, if you plant young vines and you don't have water, you know, you, you get quite high losses. So yeah. we are fortunate to have a bit of water for that. And it's not like you're in the in the most uh, prolific, uh, rich soils there, are you? I mean, they're, they're, they are quite poor soils, which gives you obviously great acidity and precision yeah, in the wines, but not the most generous of soils. Yeah, yeah they or fertile, yeah, which is very safe. And granites are generally uh, low in carbon, low in organic matter. But, you know, funnily enough, you know, the last couple of years, since we've been farming with a lot more attention to the soils, working a lot of compost and uh, cover crops and things like that, our, our yields have, have increased dramatically, you know. Um, yes. You know, this year we, we, we picked off the uh, Reichras Grenache vineyard, which is the oldest Grenache vineyard in South Africa, 8.2 tons per hectare. Oh, for a vineyard that is planted in 1951, which is yeah, that's, phenomenal. You and know? you think that's mainly and, due to change in farming over, you know, successive vintages? No, no, definitely, definitely, yeah. definitely. Uh, the vines are just looking so much better. There's more vigor. The soils are alive. Even with our with our with our Shannon Blancs, the yields are are up. You know, 30, 40 percent from what they were three, four years ago. You know. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we, we, we plant every year. We try and plant a couple of hectares. How many hectares under vine were there when you bought the farm? Look, we, we, we pulled out a few really dodgy vineyards. You know, we had, mm-hmm. we had a bit of Cabernet. We had almost four hectares of Cabernet. Um, we had a bit of Fernau Pires, uh, some Chardonnay. So I've pulled out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But we've got at the moment now, you know, we, we bought the farm next door to us as well, which is called Clay Orangery, which is right adjacent to us. So we've got on those two farms together about 43 hectares of old vines and then about eight hectares of young vineyards that are all uh, sort of starting to come into production now. At what age are you calling old vines there? Is that the sort of the 35 plus or are you sort of being more general no, at 25? None, 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 of, no, none of them are certified, but like old vines, we, we classify anything planted from earlier than 1975 you know yeah right so you're you're, you're doing a pretty exclusive um part of old vines yeah. so you're saying this oh yeah. no it's 15 years old it's an old vine yeah so we've no, no yeah so we've got we've got a we've got a we've got a block of grenache which is now 18 years old and we call it the young vines you know the young yeah. vine grenache you know yeah. uh, so it's all about uh, a point of reference you know yeah we've got um, fortunate enough to have a lot of old vines and, mm. and and most of them are planted in the right place and then, you know, I'm, I'm renting a farm next door and renting a bit of land as well because, you know, in the past for other brands like Secretaries Red and Shannon, we were buying in 
a lot of grapes from uh, growers, but we're trying to like rather rent the land and farm ourselves for, yes. for those brands as well. Because we, we, we like to farm a bit and we, we also sell grapes to a couple of winemakers, you know, nice. spread the love a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, unlike other winemakers, you've got other interests in farming. You know, you, you're sort of a, you've got other things going on in Camus Fontaine, and that's pretty much what I wanted to talk about. Uh, possibly more mm. than the wine. I mean, the wine is obviously yeah, why 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 we know each other. Yeah, yeah. You've you've got a massive interest in birds, in ornithological. Uh, you mean parrots? Those those, those oh, things. Oh, is, that it, you guys is, specific, shoot is it specific? Is it specifically parrots? Is it? You know, yeah, specifically parrots. I mean, you you, okay. you guys hate a galah. Here, here in South Africa, you know, most of the guys love galahs. I think, look, I think parrot breeding is just one up from pigeon breeding. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. Like a, a more evolved... Yeah, I don't know, David. It's the same kind of pigeon breeders, horse breeders, parrot breeders. They're all the same, you know. They like a bit of genetics and that. <laughs> yeah, so we've got, we've, we've got a lot of parrots here, but... Um, I don't know. We, we we're trying to create a lot of diversity on on on, on the farm, you know. And the parrots are uh, really like, a. Is it just an aesthetic hobby, or is there a use for them? Like with pigeons, they race, and they used to carry messages. With <laughs> with horses, they sometimes jump and they race. And I've never heard of someone racing parrots. No, we don't know, but we just. I think it's more 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 an aesthetic and a relaxing kind to have parrots. Okay. Um, we. We've got a few horses as well, but I don't ride. I'm too shit scared of a horse to ride. Yeah, me too. Um, fucking frightened of horses. You know, they haven't, they haven't got brakes. They've got too much power and not enough brains. No, that's exact. So we plant vineyards, you know, every year we try and plant vineyards, but we've planted, you know, other crops as well. We've planted uh, capers. And as far as I know, it's the only uh, locally produced capers in, in, in South Africa. Um, and that keeps us really busy, you know, it's a, having these different crops, you know, like rooibos tea and we make a, a spirit from, from, from agave. Uh, mm-hmm. We're busy with a, a vermouth, capritif and brandy. You know, it's about trying to limit the seasonality of, 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 of labor, you know, so the, so the capers keep us quite busy in the, in the, in the off time. It's sort of towards the end of our grape harvest that the, that the capers come in, coming to full production so that keeps people quite busy sorting picking i mean it's, it's, quite, it's, uh, it's quite um labor intensive isn't it david it's it's crazy you know when you when you pick the cape of flowers you know before they before they fly before they make the berry you know you pick the cape of flowers you know they they between five and eight millimeters in size and mm. you know one person if they pick well they can pick 900 grams a day it's very unsatisfying work Mm. But but the results are amazing. They are absolutely delicious. Obviously, when mm. you pick the berries a little bit later, it's a lot lot easier to pick. Um, but yeah, it's incredibly labor intensive. And and what are you doing with them at the moment? Are you selling to restaurants? Are you just eating them yourselves? But our first proper crop this year, we've picked about nine hundred kilograms. Nine hundred uh, kilos, which is which is quite nice. And we're going to start selling that at markets and uh, oh, very here cool. on the farm as well. We've got a bit of a farm shop with various products we sell here. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the aim is to obviously supply a few restaurants um, with with these. Yeah. So talk to me okay, about cool. um, the comparative the vermouth. That's a super interesting project. Yeah, it, it all just happened by by chance. <clears throat> there was a Danish guy that was traveling here through South Africa, and uh, he placed an advert in the in the Vineland uh, Wineland uh, magazine, just saying this he's got an interesting project. Does anybody if anybody's interested? Please, and he, and he got no response whatsoever. And uh, 
he was at a wedding and he met a friend of my wife's and she was chatting to him and said, listen, you've got to meet Artie. And he came out here and he said, listen, man, we've got to make a vermouth. And uh, I said, a what? I'd, I'd never really drank vermouth before. You know, I thought oh, really? it was what, what old, old people drank and they maybe put it in the old soup or a stock or something. And um, so we just uh, started experimenting here in our kitchen in Demijohns. So when, when, when was this? When did you meet? And the um... name was Caperitif. And this was a... And this was a vermouth <clears throat> that was made here in South Africa far back as the early 1900s. It disappeared off the market, far as I can see, in the late 1940s. So we registered the name and started uh, producing this vermouth. But it's, it's not a typical uh, European vermouth. You know, those vermouths are generally focused on just herbs and botanicals. Uh, we use a lot of fruit in ours. So there's a big fruit aspect to our uh, vermouth, and we use very good wine as a base. <laughs> as, different, as different to the yeah, European I, ones. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, the... Hello, Anna. It's David. So, hello. Hi. Hi, Anna. How are you? <laughs> it's Anna. <laughs> uh, there she goes. Um, yeah, look, I mean, to be honest, David, I, I knew nothing about vermouth, and, and, and I think it was a, a quite a good way to, to start out. So why did you, what, what, what interested you in the project in the first place? I mean, why did you say yes to it? Why? This is, this is really what I want to get to. Uh, is Well, I mean, I, I, I love history, man. And mm. uh, Caperitif has got amazing roots in, in South African history. There are a couple of famous cocktail books published, or they were in the, in the 30s. The most famous is probably the Savoy cocktail book, mm -hmm. um, the Savoy Hotel in London. You know, paging through there, there are a lot of cocktails that originated in South Africa that contained caperitif. Mm. So that was immediately to me like, wow, man, this is, a, this is a really interesting and it's a proper thing because I think these days a lot of brands and a lot of things are created around a boardroom table. You know, guys just think, oh, this is a trendy thing. Let's throw some cash at it, see if it works. It doesn't. But this was, to me, like a real roots project. Mm -hmm. uh, the name, the history, the mystique behind it. Because when we started making it, I, I got a lot of emails from uh, bartenders from the East Coast of America. And they were saying, hey, man, I see you guys are making the ghost again. I said, the what? I said, no, no, the ghost. We, we, we call it the ghost because it's in all these old cocktail books and we can't find it. So we call it the ghost ingredient. So that was amazing for me, you know, just to have that kind of uh, mystique about it. The, the, the one thing as well that we do when we bottle each lot is a, is a specific lot, you know, because it's made throughout the year, the botanicals vary from a dried form to fresh. And, you know, it's depending on the season. So they, they all extract slightly differently. So we label each one as lot one, two, three, et cetera, et cetera, as, as, as we bottle. Same recipe but just different lot numbers, which I think that's probably like a throwback to our winemaking heritage, you know, having vintages on the bottles. You know, this is this year, this is this expression of that year. And um, so we've, well, we've, we've carried that same philosophy through into the Caperitif. Cool. And so what, uh, what lot are you up to now? What are you making now? Okay, so I've got, uh, you must remember that we've got a very big Solera yes. uh, here at the winery. So we've got a lot of barrels full of caperative. Every single lot number that we make is, is, is barreled down. Yes. A percentage, 20 to 30% of each lot is barreled down and aged. Mm -hmm. And then we draw out of that every time we do a new bottle. So we are, we've got at the moment in tank, 
busy extracting lot 10 and 11 and we're busy we're going to start on 12 we're bottling 10 quite soon so we just it's a continual process and it's nice you know it's nice keep keeps people busy keeps them on their toes and, is it um, and we do a slow extraction. We, we do the extraction in wine, you know, so we don't do extraction in alcohol. Yes. So the extraction is much longer. If we so, do the extraction in alcohol, we could, we could, you know, we could produce a batch in two weeks. And so is there lots virtually a vintage in terms of, do you make one lot a year or is there, are you not that dependent on? Uh, no, we make, no, we're not that dependent. Like, no, no, we, we, look, I mean, we, we make as much as we can, we can sell, you know, so we try yes. and do two or three lots a year. And how many years has the project been going? Four years now. So it's obviously something that we'd like to to grow because it's, uh, I think it's 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 got a tremendous amount of appeal. It's, I mean, firstly, it's bloody delicious. It's uh, it's easy it's easy to use. Uh, People just need to know how to use it. You know, the best way to drink it is just on ice or tonic water or uh, mix as well with white spirits. It's fantastic in cocktails. You know, we've had a lot of support of the local. Uh, bartenders, when they go and compete at these competitions overseas, they've often got a bag of Capra, a bottle of Capratif in their bag and they mix and throw and they do really well with it. I mean, even from my point of view, from the Sommeliers Association in South Africa, we used it in some of our competitions. So we would uh, serve it blind to um, uh, each of the sommeliers trying to trying to um, uh, become sommelier of the year and they would have to describe it, tell us what it is and how they would serve it. So it was a very interesting thing to use being a, a very local ingredient. I think it'll make you think quite a bit, you know. But I mean, not, not everyone who loves history goes out and tries to recreate it. What, what do you think is in you that makes you want to do that? Or is there, is it a, I mean, there's obviously not just you on the farm. There is Cornelia, your wife and the kids, and obviously your, yeah. your cousins involved and, and your brothers, Charles, yeah. are out there as well. Is it that sort of yeah, Charles, um, family yeah, no. spirit? What's the impetus there? Because I mean, I, I, also, I, I also like history, but I'm not going out to um, recreate stuff that I read about that happened 80 years ago. No, but I think, David, this, this, the timing was, uh, was perfect for us, you know, mm. and, uh, being in this industry, being so close to this amazing, you know, what, what, what's captured in every bottle of Capratif as well is, is a thousands and thousands of years of medicinal plants. And that knowledge mm. is in those bottles as well, you know, and that to me is a beautiful thing. I, I, I get goosefish when I, when, when, when I think about like the history and stuff that, that is in Capratif. That, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of things that you, don't, that you wouldn't want to recreate, I suppose, but, but my background I don't know. We we I've always been sort of quite in, in, inquiring, and I like to experiment with things and flavors and hmm. uh, different things. I don't I I, I don't want to be just defined by by the wines we produce here because of the this farm is a should be more like a living organism or a unit. You know that's why we plant a lot of trees every year. We're planting six hectares of cork oaks and English oaks this year just to, because trees give me a lot of pleasure. You know I think. Trees give everybody a lot of pleasure. When you sit under a massive old tree, it gives you pleasure. You don't know who planted the bloody thing, but it just gives you pleasure. And it's about doing something like that for the, for the generations to come as well. Why we grow things and why we're productive. You know, my uncle always said to me, listen, Artie, if you've got a piece of land, you need to be productive. You know, that's, that's the one thing you need to do is be, be productive. These lockdowns have... I don't know. It's been a, it's it's been amazing for us, you know, because we, you know, luckily we've got we've got space here, which yeah. is which is amazing. Yeah. 
and we've got like a couple of staff living on the farm and we've become like really, really like close knit now, you know, in the last last week or so. Nobody leaves the mm. farm. Only one one person once or twice a week to go and buy supplies. To milk and bread um, and things and yeah. Yeah, milk and bread and that kind of thing. And, you know, we can carry on with the basic farming stuff. I've still got grapes hanging, by the way. Have you? Um, deliberately? Yeah, I've got... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, deliberately. I'm, the, I'm the, one of the biggest, world's biggest producers of Booker Traber. <laughs> oh, right. You and, you and um, David uh, Nevos. Yeah, I, I sold David some grapes and see, but he wasn't very impressed. But uh, but right. we've got some big trouble that, that we make. I'm, sure, I'm sure he told you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, he told me, but I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna bill him. If the, you know, if the, the Cedarburg Booker Trouble this year shoots the lights out, you know why? It's from okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fontaine. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, it's the uh, the lower land um, uh, influence. Yeah, and 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 so we we're, we're making a bit of yeah no so we're making a bit of sweet wine and a bit of bit of bit of bit of raisin stuff which is which is nice. We've got ah, okay. Fix already. Very cool. And we just we're just waiting for the last one now. Uh, yeah. Shannon or Colombo or no Booker Trouble. Oh, from that. Okay, sorry. So now I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no. From that. From that. Yeah. yeah. I'm the, I'm the smart Artie. I can't even put one plus one together. Obviously, so you have to lead me through it. That's okay. <laughs> but you also, I mean, um, apart from comparative, you mentioned it's great with tonic. Now you actually make a tonic. Is that correct? Yes. Do you still, yeah. Yeah. The swan, the swan. Yeah, we, it's the, yeah, swan tonic. Yeah, we're going to, we, we've just done a small bottling uh, in 200ml in bottles, but we're going to, uh, you know, Dave, we're going we're gonna to move over to cans uh, mm. quite soon. So we make the tonic water, obviously, here, the extract. Uh, it says Persian limes with Kai apples. Kai apples is an indigenous uh, fruit, tiny little yellow fruit with high acidity, but amazing sort of peachy, apricot kind of flavor, um, cardamom and mint leaves. And uh, we make the extract here for a couple of days, a cold extraction. And then that's added to uh, water that we get from our neighbor on the poor part of Berg with a bit of citric acid and quinine. And, and that's it. And that, yeah. that, and that project, yeah. that project was really after the comparative. You thought, well, if we're going to make one, we might as well make the other. Or yeah, because because um, and I, I approached a, a couple of guys in Stellenbosch with the idea of making like a bespoke tonic and uh, this and that. And yeah, they they weren't very keen, you know, and and they wanted like half the business anyway. So so we actually just <laughs> yeah, ended up they, doing it. Yeah, ourselves. They wanted just ten percent input and fifty percent output. No, yeah, no, they wanted like everything, you know. So yeah. anyway, so but in retrospect, I maybe should have should have done right. that. Um, no, we just do it as a as an add-on. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably it's it's just another a loss-making centre on the farm, you know. A loss leader, yeah. <laughs> suck them yeah. in with it. Suck them exactly. in with a tonic, and then sell them a comparative. That's a good. That's a good policy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That sounds, that, that sounds like one of those boardroom numbers that you were talking about before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I work for a capitalist, you know. Um, <laughs> so there's a tonic, and then you said you said you were making agave spirit. I mean, a mezcal style. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, mezcal style. So um, where do you get the agave from, and what is it? Uh, is it blue agave? Is it? Yeah, it's a blue agave. There's various pieces of blue agave, but I wouldn't have. A, I don't know which which one it is. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a yeah, blue agave, and it's it's grown in Crofrenet in the Eastern Cape. Okay, how far um, away is that? Well, it's a, about a just under eight hundred kilometer drive from from the farm. 
Okay, just, Renette. Just a, just a, just a nice um, little morning drive. Yeah, just just around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just around the corner. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, the, the reason why we started making, like somebody dared me to make it, and it, I, I was I, I met the guys from um, a company called Del Maguey, and they make, you know, they, they're quite a well-known mezcal brand in the States, and a guy called Ron Cooper. I met him in America at various wine shows and stuff like that, and he always used to pour me his mezcals and tasting the different villages and different species. It was amazing, you know. It was really, it's probably the only real true craft spirit in the world is, is, is mezcal, you know. It, was, it can't be upscaled. Yes. The productions are tiny and it's very expressive of where it's, where it's grown in the species. Um, so we just, we, we tried it, you know, uh, and um, now that we've started, we can't really stop because we're doing like a, a joint venture with, um, so we, so we make the spirit, we, we, we cook it here underground in a huge oven underground, like a big pit, which is sort of five meters across and two meters deep. And we, we cook the gov there for 10 days underground, bring it out, mash it up, ferment it in big wooden vats press it and then uh, then distill it and then that spirit we distribute with uh, signal hill products uh, the guys from uh, devil's peak um it was you know for us to, to sell another thing it was a bit daunting we we love the process <laughs> the whole process uh, in making uh, the spirit is 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 phenomenal you know the plants take 20 years to mature we go out and we select individual plants, we harvest and bring them back here. Um, it's a hell of a process, but it's uh, another thing, you know, it creates jobs and it, it pays for itself. Cool. Um, and what's that called? Yeah, that's the story. The fourth rabbit. And how do you... Uh, and sold and how do you... locally in half, half liter bottles. I saw uh, um, recently you had the rooibos um, harvest. Was that your first rooibos harvest? Yeah, that was our first rooibos harvest. Look, obviously, we use a lot of rooibos in the caperitif, so it was an idea. We're just busy establishing a caperitif garden with all the ingredients. We, it's obviously, it's quite tricky to use all the plant because we use 47 different ingredients in the caperitif, yeah. and not all of them grow here in South Africa. Like cardamom doesn't, cloves don't. But we're going to plant a caperitif garden with, with all the botanicals in there, you know. We have one, one guy look after it, and yeah, we, we'll probably get our tea back uh, next week sometime. They, they carve it, so they, so, they, so they chop it up into tiny pieces. Then they put it out on, uh, what, what's the English word for a barn? Uh, like, a, like, a, like a big slab. <laughs> put it out in a slab and it, and it, and, 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 and it uh, dries a bit and then they wet it and they make piles and it sweats and it, and it, and it, almost, it doesn't ferment. You know, I was mm. talking about fermentation, but it doesn't ferment. It actually just oxidizes and sweats. And they, okay. But it's a quick turnaround, um, it sounds. Spread it, uh, f uh, sweep it up again into piles and it, and it sweats some more. Um, <clears throat> and then thereafter, you've got rooibos. Um, it's it's how much, everything. How much did you harvest? Uh, half a ton or half a hectare. Yeah, nice. Yeah, if you, yeah, it's a lot. It's uh, at 10 cents a bag. That's quite a lot. <laughs> I don't know how much I'm going to get back. You know, maybe yeah. maybe the guys that are curing it for me just reckon it's of superior quality, and they're going to maybe zip some. You have to ask for a street value. What's this worth on the street? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're doing that, and uh, and now yeah, you're other things. I noticed also that you um, you're back into the CWG, the Cape Winemakers Guild. You were in there, um, I think, from your Rustenburg days. Am I if I got that right, or were you? 
Did you yeah, join yeah. originally? And then, and then, you know, shit, I don't know, 2000 and some, I can't remember, 2003, 4, 5, I don't know, something like mm-hmm. that. And then you left for a couple and of years. And then, um, yeah, I left for a couple of years, man. I, it, it, it just became really busy, man. Uh, and um, with everything happening here on the farm and, uh, you know, we started a small little project in Italy in, in, in the Abruzzo area. So that, that was taking a lot of my, that was taking a lot of my time, and you know we we are we're not Burgundy, you know we're not Premier Cru, Grand Cru, Burgundy. So we actually have to step out of our winery to sell wine. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. You know, um, so to sell wine, I mean, yeah, it's it's a horrible thing, but you know, yeah, you, you have to travel a lot and. Yeah, it's just one of those things. So, so I ran out of time, and uh, but I've got a lot more organised now, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I've got a bit more time. And the guild is an amazing, a bunch of guys. Yeah, so I do, I do get, I do a lot out of the guild, and yeah, they do a lot of social upliftment, which is good. A lot of the protege programs are amazing. So mm-hmm. that's a very, very good uh, institution. Cool man. And tell, tell us about the Abruzzo project. Yeah, so the so the Bruto project was it's uh, it, it it's it's myself and uh, my Norwegian importer and uh, and another Italian winemaker and um, so this Italian guy this had a, had an old building on, on on one of his properties and we just converted that uh, into a winery. Yeah, we started making wine. We started in 2017. With the red, we work with uh, Motel Pulciano, which is the red, fantastic red grape. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. It's been quite a, quite, a, quite a learning curve. The whites is mainly uh, Pecorino, Trebbiano, and uh, a grape called Salangina. Mm. So we just make two wines, one, one wine, one red. Obviously, everybody knows the famous um, Abruzzo wines of Emilio Pepe and Valentini. Those are the sort of cult wines there. But I think the Abruzzo is a lot like the a lot like the... Swartland used to be just dominated by one or two big cooperatives. And the Bruna is much like a big, big wineries dominating the scene, but a lot of smaller, interesting wineries now are coming to the fore. Yeah, it's an, it's, an it's, an, it's an interesting area because it hasn't seen the um, the investment that, say, Tuscany over, over the, obviously the other side of the mountains has. Um, so this is still, no, there still so. seems to be a lot of uh, uh, authentic producers there and almost trapped in time. Without the big that, sort of cypress trees down the driveway and the uh, and the big gates. No, you've, you've, yeah, you've, no, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, the the properties are modest. The people are really, really down to earth and you know quite proud of their traditions. But obviously, you know, with this situation, they were first hit, and uh, yeah, you know, nobody can nobody can get to the winery. The the guy looking after the winery at the moment, he lives in the village next door. He's not allowed out, but luckily quite a fancy little winery, so a lot of the cooling and stuff on remote. Make sure it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so hopefully that's gonna that just hopefully this is gonna pass. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a crazy time for sure. No, no it is. Uh, my, my 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 brain is too small to understand um, all the potential ramifications that can that can occur. Yeah, so that's that's our story. But uh, thank you for your time. I very much appreciate David. it. Say goodbye, David. Bye, David. Bye, David. <laughs>